John 14, verse 22. Then Judas, not Judas Iscariot, said, But Lord, why do you intend to show yourself to us and not to the world? The word of the Lord. So how excited are you about the Super Bowl? I know, I know, our hopes were so high, right? So close, yet so far. You know, people love the experience of winning, but also the experience of sharing something together with their team, their people, that other people don't have. I love my team because my team is better. I love my company because my company has a better product. I love my church because my church has a better mission. There's a strong us versus them mentality in the way societies organize themselves, in the way the human mind frames things. State versus Michigan. Men versus women. Apple versus Microsoft. Cats versus dogs. Now, worse than us versus them is us or them, right? In other words, both groups cannot coexist. It's one or the other. Conflicts among nations, sadly, have often been an expression of us or them. Why can't it just be us and them, right? No rivalry implied, simply difference. Curly hair and straight hair, or even no hair. Big people and small people, right? For some things, we need not attach any value to one over the other. It's both and, not either or. And so we love the Super Bowl and sports in general because they allow us to experience struggle, victory, or defeat, us versus them, but it's all good fun. Now, how many of you are looking forward to guac tonight? Let me see. Oh, wow, almost no one. Come on. How about winks? Do we get more showings? What? What about pizza? Ryan, good. Okay, good. Yeah, that's great. Yeah, you know, hey, enjoy. Now, there is, however, one irreconcilable struggle between God and evil. And it is decidedly God versus evil and God or evil. One must win. One must banish the other. On a naturalistic view of the world, though, people struggle to call certain things evil. Many of the elite institutions in our nation and some very smart people would not and could not call the October 7th attack from Hamas to Israel last year evil. They would not. Now, I am not talking about the military or political implications of how Israel should have or should have not responded. Uh, The issues therein are many and complex. I'm not talking about that. I'm simply talking about the ability to say without mumbling our words that the attack itself was evil. The ability to say that all rape is evil, murder is evil, a perversion of justice is evil. You see, on naturalistic premises where there is no God, everything, all things become a matter of viewpoint. I view it this way, you view it that way. The biblical worldview, however, tells us that God and evil cannot coexist. The biblical story ends with God removing all sources of evil from his world, human and subhuman, natural and supernatural. And because the world in its present form does have evil in it, there is a deep conflict between God and the world. The most famous verse in the Gospel of John, for God so loved 
the world, that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. God so loved the the world. In this way, God loved the world. How did he love the world? By giving his one son, by sending his son for the salvation of the world. And so the son came into the world, challenging the world, facing rejection by the world, dying at the world's hand. Part of the way that the son effects the salvation of the world is by creating a community of people who know him, who follow him, his disciples, his church. And as that community grows, more and more people are taken out of the world and into fellowship with Christ. And so today we're going to look at three things that followers of Jesus have that the world does not have. His teaching, his peace, I'm coming, and his love. Yes, let's go for it. Let's start with Christ's followers have his teaching. Let's read one more time. John 14, verse 22. Then Judas, not Judas Iscariot, said, But Lord, why do you intend to show yourself to us and not to the world? In the Gospel of Luke, we learn that this Judas was one of the twelve. Um, He was one of the 12 disciples, and he was the son of a certain James. And he has a sensible question. He says, Lord, why do you intend to show yourself to us and not to the world? He said that. He asked that because just a couple of verses before Jesus had said, before long, the world will see me no more, but you will see me. So he's asking, why? Why won't you show yourself to the world? Earlier in the Gospel of John, chapter 7, Jesus' own blood brothers had come to him and said the following. They said to him, leave Galilee and go to Judea so that your disciples there may see the works you do. No one who wants to become a public figure acts in secret. Since you are doing these things, show yourself to the world. And then John adds this note, for even his own brothers did not believe in him. Now Judah, son of James, one of the twelve, does believe in him. But what he has in common with his own blood brothers, who at that point did not believe in him, is that they believe if you want to change the world, you need to make a big splash in the world. If you want to change the world, you must show yourself to the world. They believed that he was the kingly Messiah. And if he was establishing the kingdom of God, he should show himself to the world. They had no category for the way the kingdom of God grows and develops by the planting of very small seed. That then becomes the largest of trees. They, the disciples, were the seed about to be sent into the world. Because they had received the word of Christ. And that word had cleansed them. And so now they had his word. And they were about to be planted into the world. So let's look at some of the differences between his disciples and the world. Jesus goes on and he says, Anyone who loves me will obey my teaching. My father will love them and we will come to them and make our home with them. Anyone who does not love me will not obey my teaching. These words you hear are not my own. They belong to the father who sent me. So the first difference is that his people love him and the world hates him. His people love him. The world hates him. In John 7, when his brothers came to Jesus and told him, hey, you should show yourself to the world. Here's how he replied to them. He said, The world cannot hate you, 
but it hates me because I testify that its works are evil. So notice what he doesn't say. He doesn't say, my disciples love me, but the world is indifferent to me. It's not what he says. He says, the world hates me. Why does the world hate him? Because I testify, he says, I testify that what it does is evil. Do you see the God and evil antithesis here? Jesus is hated because of his teaching. Because he's testifying that what the world does is evil. Jesus didn't come and say, hey world, I know that you have a different point of view than I do, but it's all good. That's not what he said. He testified that what the world does is evil. Now there's a great musician, John Lennon, who had a vision for how to save the world. But it was different from Jesus' vision. In his popular song, Imagine, which I'm sure many of you know this song, he puts forth the vision, right? And so he says, here's how the world can be as one. No killing, no greed. So far, so good. Those are just the sixth and the tenth commandments we receive from the Lord. But then he goes off the rails. Then he says, no heaven, no hell, no countries, no religion, no possessions, nothing to die for. We simply live for today and we live life in peace. Now, I love the tune in this song. Before I knew English, I was like, oh, this is the best song ever. But the lyrics are horrendous. Because he's basically saying, let's get rid of God. Let's get rid of private property. Let's get rid of purpose and passion. Let's get rid of humans, basically. Because that's, that's, those are all those things that go deep to us and for us. How are you going to deal with evil in that vision? Especially the evil within. Not just the evil out there. There's a heaven because there is a God. There's a hell because there's despicable evil in the world that must be punished. Heaven and hell are not simply imaginings. And because Jesus testified that what the world does is evil, the world hates him. His death, his gruesome, bloody death on the cross is proof, is witness to the world's hatred of him. But he is loved by his own people. He is loved by those who know him. And you know that you love him because you keep his teaching. That's what he says. You know, those who love me will keep my teaching. So you can ask yourself that question. Do I love Jesus? Well, you'd know if you keep his teaching, keep his words. Now, it's not uncommon to meet people who say that they love Jesus, but they're not too keen on his teaching. Now, why that discrepancy? Well, it could be that they're deceived. So they think they love him, but in reality, they really don't. Because he says, no, if you love me, you will keep my teaching. But they don't really like his teaching. They don't really love him. That could be one of the reasons. But another reason is that we can fall in love. Our soul can fall in love with Jesus. But it takes some time for our mind and our hearts to catch up to the words of Jesus. And this is true for all of us. We all, uh, our obedience is always trailing behind our profession of faith. Here's how Martin Luther put it. He says, there are three conversions. The conversion of the heart, the mind, and the purse. <laughs> In that order. What did he mean? He meant that there are people who love Jesus, and they really do. But their view of money is unchanged. It hasn't been affected deeply by the gospel. 
They love him, but their view of money is shaped, more shaped by our consumerist culture, by our fears, by our parents, by all kinds of influences, but not by the gospel. It's an amazing thing, however, when our trust in God gets to that point when we become generous people. We're just able to be open-handed. And so a good exercise for all of us would be every year to try to give away more than we did the year before. That will stretch you. Oh, yes, it will. But it will be good for us. It will grow us in our trust. But as I said before, our obedience to the words of Jesus, to his teaching, is always trailing behind our confession of faith. But it should always be moving toward it, to match it. We're not after perfection. We're after pursuit. We're in pursuit of what we believe to be true. We must do this with our giving, with our sexual purity, with our speech, with our anger, with our opinions of others, on and on. Jesus says, anyone who loves me will keep my teaching. And then he says that for those who love him, his father will love them. And he says that we will come to them and we'll make our home with them. Just think about this. I mean, this is just beautiful language, but beautiful truths. He says, we will come and make our home with them. He's speaking of our union with Christ, which we learned about last week. The divine life and the divine love that we're invited into as Father, Son, and Spirit are in us and we're in them. There's so much mystery in this. The reality that God is with us. Now, when, when we hear this language of God making his home with us, we tend to think of presence, the presence of God with us, God with us. We're never alone. And this is true, but there's more. We should also think of the value, the value of human life by the fact that Father, Son, and Spirit, the creator of all things, would come and dwell within us. What does it say about us? And how we should treat one another in light of God living within us. And then we should also think of witness. Our witness to the world. Because the life and light of God shine through to the world through us. He goes on. Verse 25. He says, all this I have spoken while still with you. But the Advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and will remind you of everything I have said to you. There are five different passages about the Holy Spirit in these chapters. This is the second one. We looked at the first one last week. There we learned that the Holy Spirit is our comforter, our counselor. He guides us into all truth. He is in us. We know him. The world does not know him. Today, Jesus calls him the Holy Spirit. In that passage, he called him the spirit of truth. Here he's calling him the Holy Spirit. So this is the spirit who, as opposed to the evil that's in the world, represents and brings God's holiness into the world. And Jesus says that he's going to be sent in his name. So the spirit of God is sent in the name of Jesus. So apart from his name, no one becomes holy on earth. Because they do not have the Holy Spirit. And only the Holy Spirit can make us holy. And then he says that he will come and he will teach you all things. And he'll remind you of everything that I have said to you. So that verse, John 14, 26, is a critical verse in helping us understand early, the development of early Christianity and of the New Testament. You recall 
that during his ministry, Jesus' disciples struggled mightily to keep up with him. Half of the time, more than that, they had no idea what was going on with his ministry, with his words, what he was doing, who he was. Even in the upper room, when he's about to leave them, I mean, they have just a few moments left and there's still a lot of things they don't understand. Philip even says, Lord, show us the Father and that will be enough for us. And Jesus says, what? Don't you know me, Philip? Even after I've been with you such a long time, what's he saying? I'm about to leave you, Philip, and you still don't get it. So here's the question. What happened? How do we get to a point when we go from that level of no not, no under, not understanding to having the New Testament come together, giving us with such clarity the mysteries of Christ and all that happened in just the next few decades. How do we get from here to there? You know the answer. The death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus and then descending on Pentecost of His Spirit over His people. With those events, the pieces of the puzzle all came together and then Finally, Jesus' words and ministry made sense to them. Let me give you a good example of this. In the Gospel of John, in chapter 2, Jesus is in Jerusalem, in the temple, and he's clearing the temple because they've turned it into a market. And so he's overturning the tables, he's driving out the money sellers, exchangers, and so on. And so his opponents, the temple authorities, his challengers, say to him, what sign will you do? To show us, to prove that you have the authority to do this. And Jesus says, destroy this temple. And I will raise it again in three days. And they take him literally. And so then they say to him, it's taken 46 years to build this temple. And you, you will rebuild it in three days. And what did Jesus say after that? John doesn't tell us. Instead, Here's what he says. But the temple he had spoken of was his body. After he was raised from the dead, his disciples recalled what he had said. Then they believed the scriptures, the scripture and the words that Jesus had spoken. Do you see? Jesus' explanation did not make sense to his challengers nor to his disciples. Not at that moment. It was only after his resurrection and with the spirit coming on them that they were able to look back on all of Jesus' ministry and words and all that he had taught them and it clicked for them. Then they were able to go, oh, it was about his body that he was speaking. He was talking about the temple of his body. The three days referred not to putting back brick on brick on that temple, but rather to coming back from death to life. Do you see? And that's just one example of what the Holy Spirit did after the death, resurrection, and ascension of the Lord in the disciples to help them put it all together. He taught them. He says he's going to teach you all things and remind you of everything I have said to you. How wonderful is that? Listen, the Spirit of God is still teaching us all things. And so Christ's followers have his teaching but they also have, we also have his peace. Christ's followers have his peace. Jesus goes on in verse 27. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give you. 
I do not give to you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled and do not be afraid. Listen, the world does not have the peace of Christ. In the world, peace is a popular slogan, but an empty promise. Where is peace? What is peace? We define peace so minimally. The absence of war, that's peace. Politically, if our party has control, is that peace? Oh, absolutely not. No, then the fight is on to get the party's agenda through and to win the next election cycle. There is no peace there. We know this. How about relationally? If there is no conflict among friends, that's peace. But again, that's a minimal definition. The absence of conflict. Besides, conflict is merely a symptom of something deeper. Things like anger, disappointment, slander, selfishness, on and on. And the world has no lasting solution for these things. What about professionally, career-wise? If our career is going well, is there peace? Personally, I've met so many highly educated, very intelligent, very hardworking people who struggle intensely to find meaning in their work. Not peace, but striving and restlessness seems to characterize people's professions. I know you relate to this. So what even is peace? Does it even exist? Is it worth desiring? The reality is that you and I long for peace. We long for peace. So what is it? Jesus says, peace I leave with you. My peace I give you. Yes, Peace is a real thing. It does exist. It's something that belonged to Jesus. And he shares it with his people. Peace belongs to Christ. That's why he says, my peace. And he shares it with us. He says, my peace I give you. And the result is that our hearts are untroubled and we are not afraid. How awesome is that? In a world that is so chaotic, with so much evil, with so much up and down. And I know we all feel this. To be able to be untroubled and unafraid. How amazing is that? Yes. You see, the, the world, the kind of peace that the world offers is a counterfeit. It's why they don't have it. It's not lasting. It's not true peace. But they long for it. They long for it. The word peace translates the Old Testament Hebrew word shalom. Shalom. I know you know this word. It's everywhere in the Old Testament. Shalom belongs to God. And he shares it with his people as a blessing. Let me just read you a couple of verses. There are so many. Number six. Receive this from the Lord. The Lord turn his face toward you and give you shalom. Psalm 29. The Lord gives strength to his people. The Lord blesses his people with shalom. Isaiah 9. A prophecy about the Messiah. 
And he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Shalom. Of the greatness of his government and shalom, there will be no end. What does shalom look like? Mm. Let me commend to you Isaiah 60 for many pictures of shalom promised to God's people. Let me give you just a few. These are all from Isaiah 60. Shalom is the deepest satisfaction. It's the glory of God rising upon you. It's honor rather than shame. Shalom is fullness of family relations. It's wealth and abundance at your feet. The Lord endows you with splendor, says the prophet. Shalom is gates that always remain open. That's how unconcerned you are for your personal safety. Untroubled and unafraid. Now, if you own a security systems company, Shalom would put you out of business. Shalom is your oppressors bowing before you. It's the greatest quality of the greatest things in life. Shalom is no violence or destruction, but praise and salvation. It's the light of God shining on you, the absence of sin, the presence of overabundant growth, the end of sorrow. God says, I will make shalom your governor and well-being your ruler. Amazing. And there's more. But I hope that these pictures give you a sense for what shalom is. A sense of why it is that Jesus opens in the gospel of Matthew, his kingdom manifesto with the words, blessed are the peacemakers, the shalom makers, for they will be called children of God. Listen, church, the world longs for these things. They long desperately. They crave for these things, but they go after them through malice, strife, violence, selfishness, and you can never achieve shalom through anti-shalom means. It's never going to happen. And it's all the world has. Now you may say, I don't have many of those things that you just mentioned as shalom. And I would say to you, if you are a follower of Jesus, you should have them. At least in seed form. At least in seed form. Listen, the vignettes that we see in Isaiah 60 and in Jesus' Beatitudes and in many other scriptures will only come to full fruition, full blossoming at the return of Christ when God makes all things new. Read the last three chapters of Revelation and you will see many parallels with the shalom of Isaiah 60. So yes, Full blossoming of shalom awaits the remaking of the world. But it is not the case that we will have shalom then and violence, deficiency, dissatisfaction, and deficit now. That is not the case. Jesus says, peace I leave with you. My peace I give you. Shalom is ours now. Let's just take one. Example, the greatest quality 
of the greatest things in life. I've had for many years uh, a simple t-shirt that one of my sisters gave me. It has a big Captain America shield right here, although it's mostly faded by now. Now, this is by far my favorite t-shirt. It became my favorite, most comfortable shirt to sleep in uh, a number of years ago. It's not pajamas, but it's my favorite shirt to sleep in. I put it on and I can rest. I can sleep for the night after a long day of hard labors working with Jim Hobbs. No, just joking. Jim is lovely. He is lovely. But I love this shirt. Now, I I look forward to putting on this shirt. Now, this shirt costs maybe what? $40, maybe less. But it doesn't matter. The money is nothing. Because another shirt that costs $40 or twice that could not replace it. No, this shirt is a gift of shalom in my life. I put it on and I can rest. I can sleep knowing that all is well with the world because my father in heaven loves me. And everything feels right. You know, when I have this shirt on, everything feels right with this shirt on my body and not just physically, but with the world. Jesus says that our father in heaven clothes us in all glory so that we will not be anxious without peace. Now, if I gave you this t-shirt, you would probably like donate it to a thrift store and that's okay, right? It's okay. I mean, it's threadbare at this point. You can like see through it now. And so if I gave it to you, you'd probably be like, uh, thank you, but no, thank you. And that's okay because you see, it's not shalom to you. But it is shalom to me. I don't want a better shirt. I don't need a better shirt. I am fully satisfied. The same shalom has been given to me in moments of fellowship with my wife, with my children, with my church, with you, with my dog. That's a big one. Man, there's so much shalom coming from that tiny little thing. It's amazing. The same kind of shalom has come in moments of preaching when I'm doing this or reading or sharing a meal with friends. Shalom is something that Jesus has given to me. Shalom is knowing that all is well with the world because my father in heaven has been pleased to give me the kingdom. I've not tasted its fullness yet. That awaits the return of Christ. Oh, but I've tasted it. And there's nothing like it. The peace of God. And if you follow Jesus Christ, you have what the world does not have. His peace. His shalom. And I so hope that you know this. What I've just been describing, I hope that in your spirit, if you have the Lord, you know, oh yes, oh I've ta- oh yes, I want to share my moments of shalom with you. Forget your t-shirt. Listen to this. Yes, it's an incredible gift. Let's close with his love. Christ's followers have his teaching, his peace, and his love. Jesus goes on. He says, you heard me say, I am going away and I am coming back to you. If you loved me, you would be glad that I am going to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. I have told you now before it happens, so that when it does happen, you will believe. 
I will not say much more to you, for the prince of this world is coming. He has no hold over me, but he comes so that the world may learn that I love the Father and do exactly what my Father has commanded me. Come now, let us leave. The world does not have Jesus' teaching, his peace, or his love. And that here means the world does not understand his love for the Father. And the reason for that is that the prince of this world is the devil. You see, here he says, I will not say much more to you. Why? His time was up. The prince of this world was coming, he says, meaning that through Judah's betrayal, the devil and his scheme was already being carried out against Jesus. The soldiers were probably already on their way. And so he says, the devil has no hold over me. He has nothing on me. He can't accuse me. And it's stick because I've done nothing wrong. He can't tempt me because none of his claws have sunk into my heart. He has nothing on me. But he does come. My death is imminent. And he will think that he's defeated me by killing me when actually I've defeated him by dying. And then he says, and he comes so that the world may learn that I love the Father. Do you see? The world is doing, the, 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 the devil is doing this to Jesus, carrying out the death of the Son of God, by which the world is going to learn how much Jesus loves the Father. You see, the, the death of Jesus is how the world comes to know the love that Jesus has for the Father. His death was the supreme work that the Father asked him to do. The highest work for him to come and die for our sins. Take away our sins. And as his hour approached, Jesus was totally focused on finishing that task. Why? Because he loved the Father. And his obedience. Do you see that the death of Jesus is the bridge to the world? To the world where there is much evil? His death is how the world learns how much Jesus loves the Father. And many will come to follow him and become his followers and everyone else will learn on judgment day when every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord. But in verse 28, he said, if you loved me, you would be glad that I am going to the father for the father is greater than I. You see what he says? He says, if you loved me, you'd be glad that I'm going. The disciples barely understood what was going on. So much of what he was explaining, they did not fully get, as we have said, but they did not like what they were hearing. Jesus said that he was leaving them, that he was going away. He says that he was not going to leave them as orphans, but then why even bring up that word? He says he's going back to the Father. He's leaving them his peace. He's going to ask the Father to send the Spirit on them. It all sounds like a farewell, and it is. That's why it's called the farewell discourse, and they are troubled by it. And so at this point, Jesus sort of turns the tables on them. It's almost like he says, enough about you. If you loved me, you would be glad that I'm going to the Father. Now I'm sure that those of you who are here and are parents know that a thought that never seems to occur to your young children is, what would be best for mom and dad right now? Right? That's just a thought that does not seem to occur to them. I mean, could you imagine your young children coming to you and saying, mom, you look tired. Do you want to take a nap? 
Or for them to say, Dad, would it bless you if when I leave my room, I turn off the lights? Yes, the answer is yes. But no, these thoughts just don't even seem to occur to them. And you see, Jesus here is endeavoring to help his disciples take the gaze off of themselves and onto his longing, what's in his heart, his desire to go back to the Father. And what's clear from these chapters here is that that's what was he was thinking about this. He says it again and again. I'm going back to the Father. And so he says to them, if you loved me, meaning you still have a ways to go in your love for me. That's a very vulnerable thing for him to say to them. And so let me leave you with this thought. Live for the joy of your master. Live for the joy of your master. Listen, we can have such a self-centered, me-centered relationship with Jesus. A, what can you do for me now kind of relationship with him. Now, trust me, he's constantly bringing us good. He is the fullness of God that fills our emptiness. So he's constantly doing this for us. But he also expects that we'll be able to look up from our own concerns and rejoice in what brings him joy. And it's clear from these chapters in the Gospel of John that he is ready and excited to go back to his father, back to the glory that he had with him from before the creation of the world. And so church, I ask you, do you live for the joy of your Lord? The world knows nothing of living for the joy of Christ. They could care less. They hate him. It's what the world does, hates him. But what about you? Do you get the deepest satisfaction from walking with him, from listening to him, from reading what he says and doing it. Not because you must, or even because it's good for you, though it is, but sometimes because it makes the Lord happy. Oh, church, it would be so wonderful if we could enter into a season where we say, enough about us. Enough about us. Let's do it all for the Lord. Let's be about the Lord. Let's be about the joy of the Lord. Man, this week, just ask him in your prayers to him, Lord, I want to make you happy. Because listen, when you love someone, it brings you joy to do what brings them joy. So church, you're not of the world anymore. Jesus has taken you out of it. So live for him. Live for the joy of your Lord. Let's pray. Father, we love you. We do love you. And we love you loving us and making your home with us and giving us your teaching and helping us follow you by your spirit, Christ in us. Lord, we love you. We want to be faithful to you. We thank you for your teaching. We thank you for your peace. I pray for everyone here who maybe right now is wrestling with something where they do not have your peace. Would you bring it to them, Lord? Would you lead them to Isaiah 60 and let them just simmer in those vignettes of the peace you promised, the shalom you promised to your people? Lord, we come before you and ask you to grow our obedience so that it matches more closely our confession of faith that we do believe in you and we do love your teaching. 
Thank you for saving us on the cross. Thank you for sending us your Holy Spirit, Christ in us, so that now through you being in us, we have victory. In your name we pray. Amen.